Welcome, everyone, to the Green Majority Podcast. Just another reminder, if you can and are willing and able to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash greenmajority. Other than that, enjoy the show. host for the day, Stefan Hostetter. Uh, Darren remains on uh, sabbatical, but we anticipate he'll be back uh, quite hopefully next week uh, for his uh, f- to wrap up our third part of the on- ongoing series. Uh, this is, of course, The Green Majority on CIG 89.5. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, I'm sitting in, uh, in studio with uh, Sabina Hyseni. Nailed it. Uh, and, uh, and Alex is, of course, our tech today. Uh, so it's only the two of us. So we're going to do something a little fun today. We've got a good show for you. Uh, we're going to start off with some news, and then we've got a... Uh, I've been sort of picking the fields out there, trying to get some questions in. I decided that how it would be a little fun to do a mailbag of some nature. Uh, and people have got, come responded. We have about 10 different questions. We'll try to get through as many as we can, and we'll probably come back to the rest of the questions that we can't. Uh, and so if you have any questions, uh, feel free to, uh, to tweet them at, uh, at me, at Steho, S-T-E-H-O, underscore, uh, throughout the day, uh, even just today or an hour. I'll try to, if you, if you tune me during this hour, I'll even especially try to get it just because you're listening right now. Uh, and uh, it'll be a really, really fun show. Uh, but to open it up, uh, BC, we're, we're starting with some news. And in BC, there's a bit of news from uh, BC Premier Christine Clark. Uh, and you are going to cover the Sabina. Great. Thank you, Stefan. So this week, we picked out a couple of headlines that stood out to us as very important, and one of, uh, one of which was the BC Premier Christy Clark making a case for Canada to extract its natural resources and send them out to overseas market in order to help our economy. And this article is featured in The Guardian and will be posted with the show's notes later on on our website. And uh, Clark made these comments during a press conference with other provincial leaders at the end of this week's annual Western Premiers Conference in Vancouver on Friday. She also criticizes the federal government's regulatory process on natural projects such as pipelines and says that we can't become a more uncertain place to develop resources because we're competing with people around the world and we have to do it well. She says that um, it's a warning sign that the BMO lowered Canada's prediction growth rate from 1.5% to 0% since the fires in Fort McMurray began. And she suggests that our economic growth is going to suffer disastrously as a result, which then um, as a... As a result, she says that we have to put in pipelines in order to transport oil because it's a lot safer. And what's really uh, very interesting is that another article published in, in The Guardian says that the arsonists of the Fort uh, McMurray have a name and they're really the fossil fuel companies. So really, how are you going to um, create a solution by increasing the problem? How are you going to create a solution by transporting oil when oil is really the problem that's causing climate change and is causing all of these forest fires that we are seeing now in Fort McMurray and we're going to continue to see as climate change worsens? Yeah, thank you. Uh, And I I, I find that such a funny, uh, such a typical response, I think, uh, from Christy Clark of this sort of nature of, well, something bad is happening, uh, so we need as much money as, we need to, like, this needs to hunker down and make as much money as possible in the old ways that we've been making money. Uh, And what's interesting is, uh, I love her attack on the regulatory process, given just uh, how captured it's felt by the oil industry uh, for so long. Uh, The idea that, that 
that the federal government is actually, you know, causing this problem to some extent, uh, or, or like actually being onerous on the oil companies, it seems, uh, quite well from from the outside when you know or from 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 this side of the table uh, if you will uh it's sort of it's 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 interesting to look at it and be like you get you know we you like uh, we covered this conversation about the about uh about the regulatory processes a couple months ago uh from different some articles out of the national observer in which they were literally just talking to the oil industry and saying what do you want us to change oil industry was changing words in the regulatory agency's uh information i don't like for me to understand that that is that kind of connection between the oil industry and the regulatory process doesn't feel to me like onerous mm-hmm. uh you know whether or not uh, they think it's taking too long or anything uh What's in it, what's funny about the, the taking too long piece of it is that most of the delays are from people standing up and saying no. That's the real delay, especially with L, with LNG and BC. Uh, it's being slowed not necess- by regulatory process, but by but by people rising up and saying no, you cannot do this. Uh, so to come out and act as if it's like this is the government not willing to protect Canadians is just uh, and it's to some extent if, for as so much as people want to say you shouldn't politicize uh, the, the the forest fires. Uh, this is this is politicizing it. You know, using the forest fire as an example as to why we need to get. Oh, we need we need we now need LNG pipelines everywhere. We need oh, we need both an east like energy east has to be accepted as well as does Northern Gateway. Get all the oil everywhere uh, just to help our to save our economy that's now burning uh, quite quite literally. Uh, and if I may add yeah, to that. Um, when you when you talk about burning fossil fuels, you're again increasing the chance or increasing the the climate increasing climate change. And so no matter how rich your economy is, when you have climate refugees in your quote unquote developed country, then there's something wrong, and then you have to go about looking at economic development as well as well as um, environmental development and social de- development. We can't continue doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to have different results. <laughs> I think Einstein defined that as the definition of insanity. Exactly. Um, uh, when, when what I find so fa- about that is that we don't. It's interesting how people are talking about uh, about the displacement of all the people in Fort Murray, uh, because when people think about climate refugees, the idea of climate refugees are almost entirely usually people who live on land that's now underwater mm-hmm. uh, whereas this kind of internal displacement from things like forest fires are just as real and just as damaging you know uh, it's not only the fact that uh, you know people often worry about you know what happens when when you know 100,000 people need to, to go from one country to the next but even in ter- inside countries it's still very very difficult to move inside a country like you know it's no one would pretend that these 80,000 people in Vermont are just totally fine wherever they are now they, they don't have a home exactly uh, and and so that so they themselves like they are another example of climate refugees but we're not talking about them as such as such right now they're just sort of a part you know it's another set of people who have been hurt by some sort of displacement uh which is i think you need to sort of shift understanding to our our attempts to adapt aren't working uh in many ways uh and and then and that's causing these sort of different difficulties uh, so, but to to sort of go from that because we sort of covered Fort McMac uh, last year last week as well. Uh, I want to move on to actually something I also mentioned last week, but I want to get into it a little more, uh, which is sort of the if so if we if we're, we've accepted that climate change is a thing that's a, 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 letting you know we've accepted that uh, and and that and that these sort of disasters will keep getting worse unless we do something about it. Uh, it's interesting to sort of highlight the ways that the climate movement is is trying to fight back. Or the climate movement is trying to is trying to is trying to respond to the ongoing. We'll say inaction 
uh, on on climate uh, on climate change. Uh, and the, the big one of the biggest ways happening right now is at 350.org is is hosting this massive, uh, really quite global. It's lasting about a, ten or eleven days of actions across the world uh, in called Break Free. Uh, so that is breakthrough fossil fuels, and it's 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 honestly unbelievably impressive uh, in scope. Uh, you know, there's uh, on May third, the first event happened in in Wales, uh, when the UK's largest open cast coal mine uh, in oh man, uh, Fos y Fran. I, I'm sorry, anyone who's Welsh, uh, F F O S dash Y dash F R A N is something I cannot say, uh, especially with a Welsh accent. Uh, it was shut down for over 12 hours uh, with uh, with no injuries, no arrests, uh, and the mobilize or, mobilization was organized by Reclaim the Power. So this is also interesting. Is what we're seeing here uh, with these climate movements is that they're they're really. They're really embracing the idea of being uh, being diverse. They're really embracing the idea of of not saying not trying to hold all the power uh, up top, and ra- rather just like empowering and and bringing on side any sort of these smaller organizations that are sort of fighting. Uh, and the and so like, but what's interesting is again, this is global. The next day, as a part of this movement, ten thousand people marched uh, in in Batangas City uh, in the Philippines. Uh, demanding the cancellation of a proposed 600 megawatt coal uh, power plant, uh, and this is again, this is this is this is this is like all in the same sort of action. This is like this is a global response. Uh, you know, so you, it goes from the United Kingdom to the Philippines. Uh, three days later, there was one in Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, and on May 8th, there was one in Newcastle, Australia. Uh, the 9th in, in Brazil. It was going over and over, and there are all these different small groups that are organizing and locally and fighting sort of on the ground for these sort of stops. Uh, the, the one in Newcastle, actually, Australia was fascinating. They had uh, 2,000 people shut down the world's largest coal, pl- uh, coal port for a day. Uh, the kayakers uh, blocked uh, the entrance and why other people uh, blocked a rail passing. Uh, and so these are people who are, you know, they're putting their bodies in front of this. They're like when people sort of say like, well, you're not stopping anything. And again, this is people say like, well, it's only one day for sure. But this is sending a message. And that's the point of these sort of actions. And I think that the increase of awareness around the world is really going to help the climate change movement. When people were um, denied all of this knowledge and uh, all of the scientific knowledge. Of course, there was not a lot of movement, but I think that now that we're actually seeing a lot of the effects of climate change, people are starting to say, okay, what's going on now? What can we do to help? And how can we as citizens try to, you know, do our part? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to do a, I'm going to do something I didn't plan on it, but I'm going to jump into one of the questions from the mailbag, uh, just so I can jump back to this one point. Cause I think it's actually connected. Uh, so, uh, the, th- one of the questions we received, uh, when I was it, it was a, was a question of race, uh, and SES and environmentalism, uh, came from a woman named Diana. Uh, and so people of color, statistically speaking, remain underrepresented in the Canadian environmental organizations and, uh, and asked that we could address some of the, so the white middle-class nature of environmentalism and the marginalization of issues of concerned people of color in both governments and environmental organizations. Um, and then she would give a smile emoticon. Uh, thank you, Diana. Um, and what I think is interesting is that 
I can, I, I, a, I would say that the most successful environmental organizations in the in the country uh, are dominated by indigenous groups because uh, they are indigenous groups. <laughs> the only ones to really success to have major successes are these indigenous groups who are actually standing in the way. And they're the true and first environmentalists. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but but it, but it, you can't ignore that that question. Uh, and especially, it's interesting that she included the West because what I was what I was going to tie this to was uh, it's that is a very West way of thinking because when you look at this, you know, uh, the, the, it's this is a global thing. The people in they, it's not a whole bunch of white middle class people in uh, Oloburi, Nigeria, uh, who are who had demonstrated on May tenth, uh, or or and so there's definitely. It's definitely an interesting thing within within sort of uh, Can- uh, Canadian and American context, uh, and I have a couple random thoughts as guesses as to why. Because I feel like I'm not going to speak for people who are not a part of the movement. That seems like a little a little odd, but I definitely uh, I, I would point to the environmental justice lens uh, that, that's moving towards the, that that really is trying to capture that whole set of people, uh, and also some of the stuff you mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, like the black and green connection uh, that was that 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 MA sort of highlighted, and some of the other sort of things that were. Break, the environmental groups are slowly uh, getting better uh, at because it's unquestionable that in the '90s it was super super dominated, uh, and I think we're slowly seeing a move away from that, which is obviously very important. Uh, in part because I think that the only way we'll succeed in in this sort of th- in, in this realm is from a justice based lens. I've said this before, and I think that you have to understand uh, justice based lens first and foremost. Uh, which is why actually this sort of break free is a part of that ongoing tradition we've seen starting uh, with the People's Climate March, uh, which was that climate organizer uh, organized ensuring that they're putting uh, they're putting the people on the front lines first. Uh, and I think you've seen uh, a movement, especially with 350.org and their movements, uh, to actually really have their, all of their marches are led by the people who are impacted first. First, uh, and, and I think that's an incredibly important step uh, to to fighting the sort of general current nature of, of, of the very white Western environmental movement. And when you have the people that are impacted first, you can then see a differentiation of race and wealth and everything. Because usually, and a lot of studies have shown this, and we've already talked about this on the show before, the people that are most impacted are not middle-class white people in Canada and right. in America. It's usually, you know, in developing nations or even in, in our nation, let, let's say, you know, the water crisis here in Canada. It's uh, indigenous communities or people that don't have a lot of support from the government or from from um, just any minority, really. So I think that having having the people that are impacted first to to show that solidarity, to show that this is not just a white people movement, I think that's very, very important to get everybody on board and, you know, create a... Well, and also just the, to, 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 to show that they're the ones who should be leading this. They mm-hmm. are leading it, exactly. uh, especially with especially within, I think, I think what makes uh, 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 First Nation uh, movements so powerful is that they are they are truly experiencing it. Uh, as much as, as, you know, if you are a random person who lives in downtown Toronto, you aren't experiencing climate change mm-hmm. uh, to a real degree. Sure, it's a little hotter. Everyone's experiencing climate change to some extent. But the, the true negative impacts that are experiencing are these people. And so they, their voices are the ones that have to be heard because mm-hmm. they're the ones who are really being impacted. And while our job can be to, uh, to, to try to lift them up as much as possible and to right. get people's voices heard as much as possible, uh, it's not... It's, it, it will still sound hollow to some extent, I think, mm-hmm. coming from us because yeah. we don't fully feel it. Right. Uh, you know, which is in part what made uh, what made um, Yeb Sanao, uh, who was sort of became a darling of, I believe, the cop. I want to say cop twenty. Uh, 
uh, uh, who's, he's a, who's a delegate from the Philippines who had just experienced uh, the typhoon Haiyan uh, and had come out and gave an amazingly impassioned speech uh, on uh, on climate change. And like that's the kind of voice you need to hear the the voice of the person who's being uh, impacted. And they are the ones who need to be sort of first and foremost in this in this movement. Um, and and I think it's why you don't see some of it. It's why you don't see Bill McKibben standing up on all the rallies. Mm-hmm. They're not the ones. He's not the one necessarily talking and all these sort of things. Uh, but to carry through to sort of, so the um, what's interesting about what I want to go back to break three is that it really shows a specific change in the way uh, or this is, if this is how the climate movement is going to be fighting this battle, uh, then I think they've learned a lot from some of the previous failures of uh, as Diana pointed out a very white uh, 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 um, washed movement mm-hmm. uh, in that uh, what's interesting about this is that you know by putting these sort of people first and by 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 uh, having a bunch of people from all across the world in small organizing groups they've really solved one of the major problems that that Greenpeace had uh, and I'm getting somewhere with this in a second uh, which is that uh, I don't know if anyone's seen it but how to change the world is a great documentary about the beginning of Greenpeace and there's another documentary that just came out at hot docs uh, called angry Inuk uh, which, uh, in which director uh, Alethea Arnakuk Baril, probably messed that up, I'm sorry, uh, t- uh, she's the director of it, uh, talks about basically what the impact of the seal, uh, the seal ban was on the Inuit communities that, uh, that, that, were, that were the seal hunters. And and it's a fa- it one it just won the People's Choice Award at Hot Docs. Uh, definitely go see it and check it out, especially if you're uh, you know someone understand the other side of this uh, or, of this kind of issue because uh, the seal ban is remains incredibly controversial uh, on both sides. And what's interesting is that this is such a voice of someone who was not talked to. You talk to Greenpeace, and then you talked to you know, uh, to, you know. But these the, the, these Inuit communities that were being affected were not ever consulted to some extent. And I think Greenpeace uh, in the in the, in, the, in how to change the world, you can see them go out to unbelievable fanfare uh, in in the whaling expeditions. Everyone was super on board with that. They were the they were the small crusading organization. There were a couple a couple hippies going to try to stop save the whales, basically the quintessential sort of story. Uh, and and, they, and it was received very well. And then their second thing to start to stop this sort of seal hunt, uh, they were met in a very different manner. Suddenly, they were the big or big green organization coming down on a small town. And I don't think they really realized uh, the that their lack of understanding of the of the of the of the whole situation was going to completely flip uh, their their what they thought their narrative was. Uh, you know, suddenly they weren't they weren't the people courageously saving the seals. They were the people who were quite dickishly stopping a bunch of people from their only livelihood. Exactly. Uh, and so, and so I think this, and, and so anger is a, a documentary specifically based around uh, Inuit communities who are, how they were affected on the seal ban and how it took her 10 years to get this all together. Uh, and so it's a really, really powerful and I highly recommend, uh, recommend seeing it. Uh, but to just tie this back before we go to break, which we'll go to in, in, well, in just half a second, uh, I, I think that's that's what break free and the sort of climate organizing really is showing that they've learned from to some extent. They're they are they are going to the people who are on the ground, who are living it, who are directly affected, and asking them how they want to be involved or if they want to be involved, and letting them be the organizers. And I think that's the way the for, forward for the climate movement is to actually go to these places who are people instead of we can't just fly somewhere and say stop doing doing this thing. Uh, it's the people who are there, who are there joining a global movement to say no. Uh, and if there's, if there's a path forward to success, I think that's the path forward to success. Uh, and it all, and it, and it, it, that also, I think to some extent, uh, is, 
is, is, is, is, uh, is uh, I'm, I'm quite heartened uh, by the fact that that's where we're going. And I think that this really brings back to that one uh, one comment that really spurred our vegetarian and vegan <laughs> vegan uh, episode, where Brenna said that you know is the uh, same but differentiated responsibilities. You can't expect people that have lived on seal hunting their entire lives and that that's their livelihood and they're really um, like closed off communities to completely stop that and become vegan when there is absolutely no way that they can. So I think that it's really important. And I really like, you know, um, the director's message is said that I want the world to know that sealing is extremely important to us as a people for food and seal skins and just as their entire livelihood. That is exactly what they're that's what they've been doing for generation after generation. Yeah, there's a there's little there's, it's it's it's. it's it's definitely comes off poorly, I think, uh, for a for a movement to come down and say, "Hey, people, we we want to see a sustainable world, so you have to stop doing the thing you've been sustainably doing for the last two, three hundred, five hundred years." Uh, uh, if you want to get involved in Break Free, you can check Break Free twenty sixteen. Uh, there aren't anything in there isn't any of actions uh, going on uh, or, or large actions going on in, in Toronto specifically, uh, but there are. But you can check their website. And there's one major action happening in Vancouver, British Columbia uh, tomorrow. Uh, at one o'clock, so you can check that. Uh, there'll be uh, actions on the ground and in the water uh, on the, in the coast of Salish territories, demonstrate the people powered, one hundred percent renewable energy future, uh, which I think is so. Like, is a, I, I, what I like about this is that we start with BC Premier Christy Clark saying we need to get more LNG, we need to have more pipelines, uh, we need to we need to get resources, and we end this segment uh, with the fact that there is going to be a massive, massive part of massive movement in Vancouver and in these territories, which would be directly affected by that sort of exploitation uh, tomorrow. Uh, so, Christy, maybe you should maybe attend. I'm sure they could use you in a kayak. Uh, and so, before that, let me throw out to uh, Alex. Uh, what are we going to listen to? Welcome back uh, to the Green Majority on CAG 89.5, or perhaps you're listening to this on rabble.ca or across one of our wonderful radio syndicates all across Canada uh, and in a couple in the States. Uh, so really, if you're if you're across Canada or in the States, check out breakfree.org, uh, or break, it's not breakfree.org, it's a different thing entirely. It's uh, breakfree2016.org, sorry everyone, uh, and see if you can get involved in any of those movements. Uh, and if not, uh, welcome back, and if you're perhaps listening to rabble.ca or the podcast, any way you listen to us, uh, we we very much appreciate it. Uh, so now we're going to start with our grab bag, and we're going to try to tie in a couple of these also to some news stories, so we'll keep covering them a little bit as well. Uh, and again, please feel free to tweet uh, me or at the Green Majority or send us a note if you have any questions you want us to answer. Uh, we'll take any and all of them and do our best to answer them, uh, including I will I will even willing to do some research. Uh, I know that's uh, that should be expected, but I will do some research uh, if you want me to. Uh, so first question. Uh, do you think that our technology is responsible for our careless attitude towards nature? Uh, and can this be resolved via technology or by casting it aside? It aside? Uh, and then in brackets, to a degree, uh, not caveman nonsense. Uh, which I think is very insulting to caveman everywhere. Uh, the, you know, the Neanderthals were, were remarkably intelligent. Uh, but still, I understand the question. Uh, so Sabina, I'm gonna let you start. What do you think? Uh, first, this just reminds me of a of a meme that one of our professors put in class when we were talking about innovation, and it was a couple of cavemen sit around sitting around a fire saying, "Everything that we eat is organic, free range. Like there's no pollutants <laughs> in our in our um, oxygen or in our air. Yet we still live to 30. So innovation is important. Yet we have to know what that innovation is going to create at the end of the day. I mean, the industrial revolution was very important for us to grow 
again, economically and to bring a lot of people out of poverty. However, when you excessively use something and then you just overuse it for profits for major corporations, I think that's when it becomes like a real issue. And that's when technology can be used for bad rather than for good. And mm. I think that it's very important for us to start innovating ideas that have an environmental and social spin to it rather than something that is just going to make us a lot more profit and create more faster ways to like oper oper operationalize something. Mm -hmm. We have to really look at business from a point of view where um, we use technology for good rather than evil, <laughs> if I may. Yeah, um, I, I, and I, agree, I agree with you, but I, I think it comes down to some extent that uh, that technology uh, and and the sort of society, to some extent, has sort of lost its or lost its understanding uh, or expectation of what the goal of technology was. Uh, and it's unquestionable that you know technology and capitalism have improved the lives of uh, of, of billions. Uh, you know, you look at some of the numbers of the last the last you know. 100, 200 years, the number of people who've been brought out of poverty, the percentage of people who live in dire poverty, uh, is, is, it decreases. Yeah. It's unquestionable the world right now that pe more people are living longer, more people are educated, all these things are good and important things. Uh, I think where we lose sight is when we start creating technology uh, not with the end goal of just making our lives better. Yeah, when, when, when technology sort of has these, when, when you start creating technology innovation all based on other ideas, uh, you know, for instance, of just because just this will make money. Uh, or something like that. Uh, once once the technology gets pulled away from the sort of central goal of improving the lives of humans, that's the part where we start seeing difficulties. Uh, and then also the part where we, the other part of this, of course, is that a lot of technology improvements uh, have been based around uh, ways to get. Uh, it's based around sort of a, a dated mindset. You know, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, it was very very important to mine coal because there's no other way to get energy. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Uh, and so, and so the sort of technology that exists now, uh, allows us to sort of actually move past that. And I think there's definitely to some extent, uh, this, uh, there's definitely some extent in ways that technology definitely can come and help. Uh, and I, I think the question, uh, just to sort of free frame back to the question, uh, I, I think technology is responsible for careless attitude towards nature. I think it really comes down to the fact that technology, one thing it has done is it's allowed us as humans, uh, to see ourselves as more removed from nature. Uh, the more technology we have, uh, the less we feel like we're a part of nature. And in some sense, more we feel like nature's a part of us. You know, like, like, like what are parks if not us being like, okay, nature, you can hang right there. Uh, I'll come see you when I want, uh, and then I'll come back to the rest of the world. Uh, as if nature is sort of the, is the part that we allow to exist rather than the part that sort of that we all, we all require. And it's unquestionable that technology has sort of created that disconnect. Uh, but I think there's, I don't necessarily think that means that we can't, we can, we can't just throw technology out the door. Uh, and I, I, I want to briefly get back to this two other, the two stories I want to cover, uh, on this topic. Uh, both of them are just articles I don't like. Uh, cause like I honestly spend half the articles I read online are, I read because I'm, I'm hate reading them. Uh, and this is one, one is, uh, called back to the data mine. Uh, and it's, uh, it's basically an attack on the census in the walrus. And, uh, it's it's kind of it's it's I I, I don't I generally like the walrus to some extent. I this article is just generally bad. Uh, there's no actual explanation. Like it, it tries to basically say the census is useless and that we should find other ways to and then the data the, the stat is not going to help. Uh, even when most people don't agree. Uh, and in parts of it's like oh, it's not that, that reliable. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but it's still way more reliable than nothing. 
Uh, and it's a part of this interesting attack that a couple different articles have come out to attack census since we've reinstated it. Uh, and a part of thinking just a clickbait thing is to be like, hey, everyone likes census. Maybe if I say something bad, I can, I'll can i get the people who want to hate it to post it. Uh, and the second one is one in the Washington Post, uh, which is by a gentleman who says, uh, the guy's name is Virgil, Texas. Uh, I, I, I can't believe that's his real name, uh, but apparently it is. Uh, and, uh, and his article is, our fictional pundit predicted, predicted more correct primary results than Nate Silver did. Uh, and his basic point in this article is that Nate Silver didn't get 100%. He randomly guessed them and beat Nate Silver. Therefore, big data is useless. Uh, and it's, both of these articles strike me as a sort of weird response to data and to science, really, uh, which say, well, it's not always right. Sometimes I guess things wrong, and therefore everything is not useful. Uh, which makes no sense because the, the point of this isn't that it's going to always be right. The point of Nate Silver is, you know, Nate Silver is a, basically was a baseball statistician who then took that understanding he did learn there and applied it to a bunch of different things, uh, including, including predicting you know, primary results. And and the point isn't so much that you guess it all right. The point is that you're learning and making a better and better model. The point is that you're always improving. And it's these parts where I think the technology really can save us. Uh, technology has a chance to save us, I think, in the ways where it can better understand humans. It can better understand uh, the ways that we can make a positive impact. It can better understand our own impact on the world. And these are the sort of, once we once we pull it back, technology back away, I think, from the idea that we can control nature and rather just trying our best to sort of understand it and live within its boundaries, uh, it's, our, it's our only hope. Uh, and, and, and not that I'm going to say we all need to go like get in virtual reality things, but uh, I've been talking for a long time. What do you think? No, one of my favorite things about that article that you were mentioning, the big data article, was that the girl was talking about the fact that she had a master's of science and statistics, but she was saying that big data is not not a good idea. And I'm thinking, well, why have you been studying that? And I'm pretty sure that if uh, you are Canadian, then you probably work for Statistics Canada, which yeah. is the thing that you're like clearly going against. And really that the whole thing about science may not always be correct and data may not always be correct, but it also brings an awareness to an issue. Sometimes when somebody puts a number on something, it brings an awareness and, a, and then a lot of other people will say, hmm, how correct is that number? Then it creates a conversation and then it creates a movement or a counter movement, whether that be correct or not. I think you know, having studying something, especially when it's for the betterment of humanity, can create a conversation and then an awareness and then a movement to go 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 that way. Yeah, um, and I think so. I, I think that's the yeah. I think that's the, the that's the really interesting thing about it is that there's obviously a tension to some extent between technology and uh, and, and 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 you know nature to some extent. Uh, in part because technology has so much been used in the past to really fight it. Uh, but I also think that uh, to uh, to completely reverse it is 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 um is is we're, it's sometimes too late, and also we also need to actually really focus on how it can then just work better within the environment. And the only way to do that is to actually understand the spaces better. Uh, and, you know, and we understand the world. You know, as much as we still don't understand so much of the world, we understand the world better now than we did 50 years ago. We understand about 100 years ago, and this was through uh, a lot of these technological advances. Uh, and so at this point, you know. Seven billion people can't live on this planet without a fair amount of, of technology aiding them, uh, and so I think we have to understand that we need to. I think we need to set, we need to actually bring technology into the understanding of nature. Uh, you know, we see bio uh, biomimicry a lot now, and I think that's where I think that's sort of the future of how technology can sort of help. 
Uh, and, and speaking of, I'm just going to jump to another question here because it sort of ties in. Uh, and speaking of biomimicry to some extent, uh, the one of the questions is much more sort of less philosophical, much more on the ground. So we'll, we'll still have an on the ground question and then we'll throw to the next music break, uh, which is someone asked, how effective is solar technology in cities? Uh, and why don't we see more solar panels in Toronto? Uh, and then... Uh, they ask how a, a layperson can pick a good solar paneling company uh, to work with. Uh, that part, I, I, I think I'm going to leave the who can pick the good solar paneling out of this. Uh, I might send them a message. I'm not going to start naming off solar companies in the city. Uh, but in terms of how they affect our own cities uh, and and uh, and why I don't see more in Toronto, we do actually have an answer. And, and this one I did research on. I went out and uh, found someone who actually knows quite a bit. Uh, thank you much, Chelsea Longafee, for your help. Uh, and so. Uh, assuming this, so we're going to assume the question currently is Toronto centric. I know the person who asked the question is from Toronto, and so we'll, so I'm sorry. The rest of our listeners, we'll, we're going to cover this one for now. Uh, but so solar technology itself works really well in cities, uh, specifically Ontario systems, uh, because the panels are set up here are almost all feed in tariff, uh, which means they feed into the grid. Uh, so the city, the city is ideal because it's already connected to the grid. Uh, I, I, versus, say, you know, a rural farm uh, that may have plenty of space but isn't connected to the grid. So it's, uh, cities actually really effectively provide that opportunity. Uh, and but the reason why we don't see as many in the city uh, is because the buildings aren't well suited for it. Uh, on commercial building side, there are uh, there are more than you think, uh, in part because you just can't see them as much. Uh, but you don't see them on the street. Uh, say you don't see them from the street. Uh, an example of this actually is you know the building that I that, that we were kind of the center for social innovation two fifteen Sprana has uh, has solar panels on the on the roof. Uh, but we but you can't see them. It's six floors up. Uh, so part of it is just, it's just on the roof, and so it doesn't actually help that way. Uh, it's also ideal that it's a flat roof uh, with an unobstructed view of the panels uh, can be easily tilted south because south is the way you want to have it. Uh, presume this question was actually more about houses, though. Uh, the problem is not enough space. Uh, roofs that don't slope south and the obstructions from the trees. Uh, most Victorian houses could only have a couple panels, and so it's not necessarily uh, you know, commercially viable to some extent. And a lot of Victorians are old and on tree-lined streets. Uh, which, so even if a small portion of the panel is obstructed uh, or shaded, the whole panel won't work. Uh, so this is, uh, and that, that's because there's no cost-effective way to have transistors and capacitors on each cell. Uh, so effectively, it's the whole panel or nothing. Uh, so that's part of the problem. The problem is that, you know, you, we have a lot of, we, like everyone loves tree cover in the city. Uh, you know, a, a nicely tree lined seat is a uh, street is really actually lovely and people want that. Uh, but then again, it, it does cause these sort of problems with solar panels. Um, in, uh, so there's some some other uh, some other st solar panels. I'll send the other message about whether or not uh, if you want to know the other solar panels uh, instructions about other companies in existence. Uh, it's interesting that some of the few big players, there are few big players. They start, they actually some fell off, uh, and that there's and let's say that since the industry isn't uh, as new anymore, uh, there are some more veteran solar installers that have been around for like you know since 2009 2010. Um, uh, but what's interesting is that. Uh, during that time, there's actually a lot of horror stories about very poorly installed panels that fell off because people are trying to get it as quickly as possible. Uh, but that doesn't nearly happen as much anymore because the people have figured it out. And it's, again, some anything like a new technology. Uh, and... Uh, and so that's it. That's the reason. So that's, I hope that answered your question. If not, let me know. Uh, and if I hope that was somewhat helpful to why, what, what, what the deal is with solar panels in the city. Uh, and so with that, uh, Alex... What uh, if we can throw it to you again? Uh, if you have any thoughts on solar panels in the city, or if you just want to tell us what is on the music break. Sure. I mean, my thoughts on solar panels are that uh, a lot of houses are not well equipped for solar panels, but 
if you go on somebody's rooftop balcony downtown, you see every other rooftop uh, totally empty and, and all of this unused space on all of these skyscrapers, some of which is a pretty big area. So I'm, I'm wondering maybe like the houses should be exempt, but the, uh, the rooftops of those skyscrapers should maybe uh, be the ones exploring solar because they have totally unobstructed views of the sky at all times. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no shade up there. Yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, further to that, I know that Toronto has a, a new mandate or a fairly new mandate about all new uh, larger construction having to have green roof uh, going on. So, so maybe, maybe solar panels are not going to end up being viable downtown Toronto, but, uh, but green roofs certainly are going to be the way of the future in Toronto. And that should be bring like a, a range of really interesting possibilities, maybe some, uh, some rooftop parks uh, and, and hopefully uh, a bit cooler and, and less smoggy city in the summer. And welcome back to The Green Majority on 89.5 CIUT uh, or across one of our wonderful radio syndicates or on rabble.ca or on our podcast. All of the options. Uh, just thank you very much for listening. Again, this is Stefan Hostetter live in the studio uh, with Sabina Hiseni uh, and Alex Ricci is our tech. Darren is away today, but we'll very hopefully get back next week uh, if uh, and I'm sure, you know, a very, very few things to prevent that man from returning next week. So I feel quite confident we'll see him next week. Uh, if you're missing his, his at least slower version of speak. Uh, I think this episode may have the highest number of words spoken. Uh, and so if you're interested in some fewer words, uh, I will try to slow down at some point, I promise. Uh, but back uh, to our mailbag. Uh, one is a super, so we're going to jump through one question just because we can get it off our table uh, and it's easy, uh, which is someone asked me actually yesterday, uh, I'm never going to be vegetarian. How can I reduce my footprint of meat consumption? Uh, pretty simple question, Sabina. And my very quick answer to that would just be stop eating beef. And you can eat any other type of meat, really, and it'll pretty much cut in half your environmental footprint as to what you would be eating with beef. So if you like a hamburger, just eat a chicken burger or any anything. Or you can, you know, go to a local market or a local butcher so that you mm -hmm. don't have to have those travel travel fossil fuels like added to your meat consumption alex yeah further to that um it's not it's not just beef but also other cow products like uh dairy which uh, i i think most people often think uh that if they cut out beef but they they can still have their yogurt and, and cheese and and in some ways uh it's not as bad i mean especially if you're buying organic uh, or, or sort of like if you know where the milk products are coming from. But I, uh, I had an interesting pamphlet handed to me uh, by a, a collab collaboration of environmental groups and animal rights activists saying uh, this, like dairy is like almost like an epidemic on our, uh, on our environment in that uh, you're sort of, mistreating uh mistreating cows by forcing them to to be pregnant at all times um you're feeding them hormones to make them produce 10 times more milk uh than they normally would in nature and then you're sending them off to to slaughter after a couple years anyway so anyways that's my rant on dairy just take it easy on your uh on your 
cow consumption. <laughs> don't don't take my cheese away from me. Um, I need to feel good about myself. Uh, but thank you. That's actually a very good point. Uh, other a little side note is that uh, as far as a carbon consumption, lamb is almost as bad uh, as beef, uh, in part because of just how much goes into just uh, uh, lamb. Obviously, here in, in in Canada, we don't eat nearly as much lamb as we do beef, uh, so it seems like less of a thing. But I wanted to mention that. Uh, you know, it's 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 of course it's a scaling sli- it's, a, it's a sliding scale, uh, but cutting up beef is unquestionably the easiest way uh, to reduce your footprint if you're still eating meat. Uh, okay, so moving on to a much harder question, uh, because you know the, you can't all answer easy questions all the time. Uh, and this is actually from uh, this is from uh, one one of our wonderful climate vegan friends, uh, Ray, and he asks: In a world uh, full of tree huggers, carbon counters, ocean stewards, endangered species champions, toxic avengers, anti nuke crusaders, and last but not least, climate vegans, what does it mean to be a fully rounded environmentalist? Uh, does it speak to the planetary boundaries model? proposed by Johan Rockström uh, to be mindful of all potential tipping points or does that make the make one the jack of all trades and master of none uh, so it's quite quite a mouthful of a question uh, and quite the question indeed uh, so I'm, I'm going to start by saying I think What's interesting is when you, if, I find what's useful often when I think of these sort of things is to, is to picture the world that is sustainable and then work backwards. Uh, and so when I picture a sustainable world, I ask myself, who is in that world? Uh, and I think it ends up being, you know, you still need accountants in that world uh, to some extent, you know, unless, we've, unless that world doesn't include an economy. But for, for the time being right now, at least for a, a carbon neutral world, you probably still have accountants. Uh, you probably still have lawyers. You probably still have a lot of these people uh, who made who, a lot of these jobs that don't even necessarily touch the fact that they remain in a fully circular, uh, sustainable economy or, or world. Uh, and so, and so, and so, the question I think, to some extent, of 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 what uh, of what a fully rounded environmentalist is, I think, is that for me, at least personally, it's an understanding of all of these different pieces. It's definitely, in some ways, you know, based off this idea of understanding the Earth's tipping points and understanding that the Earth only can be so much, and that we have to be more at you know, be more sync uh, with nature. But I think it also comes down to sort of uh, you can't not have some specialization. Uh, in that, uh, if you don't really, if you can't talk the language of a, you know, of an economist or a chemical engineer, then they won't listen to you when you're trying to advocate for it. Uh, and so if all you do is sort of know a bunch of things, the people who really know their one thing won't listen to you. Uh, and so I think you need that, uh, specialization. Uh, and Sabina, you were in a, you know, program sort of is trying to address this exact thing. Exactly. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, connecting that communication between a specialist and an environmentalist. And really what my program is trying to do is that we are doing a master's program in business and environmental science, sustainability management is what they call it. And we have people from all different types of disciplines. We have business um, undergraduates, we have global studies undergraduates and international affairs, economists, I'm a chemist. So they're trying to use the specialty that we have from our undergraduate degree, but then also giving us this holistic view of what sustainability means and then trying to push us in that special direction that we have worked our entire lives towards. And I think what's, what's very interesting is that I think that 
and really truly rounded environmentalists comes when we start to educate the you know primary school children and start to make environmental studies if i should call it that as part of an everyday everyday and normal normal dictionary i mean we shouldn't teach profit over anything else we should teach environmental studies and then everybody can then go to do their specialization in a world which is sustainable which would be completely ideal and then you'll have you know sustainable economists and sustainable chemists and as much as you can be a sustainable chemist and as much as you can right. be a sustainable economist but then i think i think they'd just be then in a stable or they just be called economists and chemists exactly. right because they're built off this so i think there's two different ways we can understand uh understand ray's question i hope we're i'm, I'm gonna try to cover both in case in case we in case we missed it one is just sort of uh, what I think the uh, quintessential environmentalist uh, should be to some extent. And the other is, uh, which sort of the second part of the question seems to be speaking to, which is more sort of what is the under, what is the, what is the one piece that we, that, that all of these different environmentalists would be falling back on? What's the one part, what's the one sentence or the one idea or the one ethos uh, that, that, that a sustainable engineer would have in similar to a, to a sustainable economist and like that. What's the, where, where do they, what, when you track their education system back, what's the central ethos that's are actually informing them? Uh, and I think, I think where that comes down to is this really conversation about understanding that we as that we as humans uh, are uh, are not masters of the earth to some extent. You know, that understanding that we. Uh, it's interesting when you sort of occasionally I am able to 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 get out of this sort of thinking. Like I, you know, I'm I grew up here. I have a very much a uh, a human centric understanding of the world. Uh, and occasionally I'm able to get myself out of it for even just like half a second uh, and actually understand uh, the world or the space we live in as uh, as as that we're just one of everything else. Uh, and at that point, uh, it's it becomes a very different everything. All the questions change because uh, it falls down to sort of the question becomes, well, just how do we live? How do we live? Uh, and there uh, we were sort of a rather than sort of, you know, how you make enough money for retirement. The question is just how do you live? How do you live at any of these stages in life? Uh, and so I think. I, th I think to some extent, uh, you know, Ray, you know, answer your question in 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 your things that the idea of understanding the planetary boundaries in in tipping points uh, is is unquestionably s sort of that understanding. Uh, I would say that I would, for me personally, I would say that I, I would want to come from a from a from a different mindset in that uh, that sort of understanding as a tipping point boundaries to me feels like uh, well we can it feels like we're sort of pushing on something uh, or, or that we sort of like well we can't go past this line uh, whereas I would rather us be starting an ethos that would never even need the line in the first place uh, you know uh, I would rather us sort of start with an ethos of understanding of like okay well everything that I do must get back it must fold back into nature uh, you know, like every other animal that exists on the planet, what they do folds back into a large ecosystem. Uh, and so I think that one of the things that you were mentioning, I think it really comes down to people being more humble about themselves and not <laughs> thinking that we are, I as a person am the center of the universe. And I, when you said, you know, one of everything, that's very true. And, you know, realizing that we are part of nature and we are interconnected 100% with nature, I think that's really where it all stems from and, and creating a culture that mimics that rather than, I mean, which is why I would call like indigenous communities like the a very well-rounded environmentalist culture because they live with nature, they live with the seasons, and some of them depending on depending on the on on the community but really 
what what they do is that they respect they respect earth and they respect nature and they live within those boundaries and don't even think about crossing them. So I think, you know, having that kind of mindset will really help us as a society move forward. Yeah, I think yeah. So I, I, so if, uh, uh, to try to exactly answer the question, uh, which is uh, uh, what uh, what does it mean to be a fully rounded environmentalist? Uh, I think. I think you have, for me, uh, at least, I can speak for myself, I, I look to try to be, uh, to understand, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I once asked a friend of mine, uh, about, I was asking a question on the economy, uh, or, and, and, and he was trying to explain that his, his advice basically was, the economy is so often so obtuse, and all the conversation about the economy is so often really obtuse, uh, that the way to pick an environmentalist that you agree with would be to find out what they believed on things you agreed in, uh, you, that you actually understood, and then just believe them for the rest of the things. Uh, which is a very funny suggestion. Uh, but in part, I sort of think that's, that's what I try to do. I, I find people... Uh, who I uh, who who uh, who I agree with in the parts of the environment movement because again the environment is a huge conversation it's it's, it's massive uh, the amount I like I can't tell you anything about a tiger shrimp I know they exist as a thing uh, but like unquestionably there's some people out there who know a ton about tiger shrimps probably have a PhD on it oh yeah like there's probably ma- <laughs> like it's tons of PhDs and I think mm-hmm. there's to some extent the uh, this expe- like for me I end up trying to take a nuanced understanding of, uh, of all these different positions. I, I try to, I try to understand what someone thinks. I try to find the, uh, or like what the, someone I generally think I agree with argues. I try to find what someone who might disagree with from some standpoint would say to that thing. And then I'm like, okay, well, I think I understand this. Uh, and then I, and then I pick, I think, I think something comes down to picking the places that you really know, uh, you know, pick the place where you get your PhD in a tiger shrimp uh, to some extent, because that's the part where you can actually push the needle. Uh, I think it's valuable to sort of understand a lot of things but if you're going to push the needle on something you have to understand it more than anyone else like you have to have your PhD in tiger shrimp to make an impact on tiger shrimp uh, I don't know how I got in tiger shrimp but anyways this is the point uh, and I think that's the thing so for me it's like I try to get an understanding of uh, you have to some extent understand how the nuance works and how and how the world uh, and how different environmental things come together uh, but if you're going to push the needle on something you really have to understand it uh, so that's my thoughts uh, do you have any thoughts on this or one last question so I, I really think that, you know, answering that question, how to be a well-rounded environmentalist, I think when I try to introspect and think about my own self, I don't know if I'm a well-rounded environmentalist. Like, mm-hmm. I definitely don't know. Like you said, I definitely don't know everything. But I think the more you try and the more you look at your own actions and see how they would impact your community and the world, as well as, like you said, specializing in something. So it's good to be a jack-of-all-trades in the general things so for example learning about a little bit about tiger shrimp but you don't necessarily have to go get a phd on it but whatever you are passionate about you can go forward in that and then you can you know be part of the larger community that creates this change and and, and listen to the person about tiger shrimp yes. when they say things exactly. about tiger shrimp because uh, they've studied this <laughs> uh okay so we have five minutes left so i think what i want to do this uh, is just sort of try, try to wrap up the we, you know, we we we've done our best we've covered a wide range of topics uh and i'm i apologize to ma because uh, she always likes having some sort of cohesion uh <laughs> in the show and i think this show we sort of jumped through a lot of different pieces uh and so and so to try to sort of you know, bring it back together. Uh, I want to tell I mean, it's one other or, one other story, uh, not story A, one other news topic, uh, and then sort of tie it back to everything, which is 
Bloomberg has an article that was posted. It was retweeted by Andrew Coyne, uh, who's a you know a, a journalist here in Canada, who I generally disagree with, but I think is a I think at least is trying to be a reasonable person. Uh, so I like having my Twitter feed because like I generally disagree with him, but like I also think like it's interesting to have that perspective. Uh, and so he retweeted this thing uh, from Bloomberg saying, "Riding the solar coaster as shares plunge even more than coal." And it's about uh, that solar shares in the states uh, have have fallen more than coal has in the last little while, uh, and. What it comes down to is, when you read the article, uh, you know, uh, speaking of being a well-rounded environmentalist, uh, or uh, other things, you sort of think this. It's it doesn't make a ton of sense unless you are relatively backed into uh, backed into the backed into the, you understand a fair amount of the, about the economy because uh, in part a, a big percentage of this is saying yes solar quite dipped coal but actually the market is relatively good it's still unsure on these different issues uh, and while you while there's uncertainty about some of the larger solar in, uh, companies which is what's causing the, uh, the difference the actual market for solar remains quite strong uh, and so it's and that compared to coal again that requires a much larger understanding of the whole picture you know coal is being consistently is you're seeing coal is being phased out across the world and so to, to equate these two as if solar is falling as much as coal and therefore solar isn't the answer to coal is uh while may seem reasonable if you actually sort of look into the into the back backstory you understand that this is actually it's a, it's a false narrative to some extent uh, and I think that's the part that, I, that if, I, if I could leave any with any sort of thoughts with whether or not it's it's the break free movement uh, that's happening, whether or not it's uh, whether or not it's it's the angry eunuch, which is a fantastic narrative in itself, uh, or 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 how BC's premier Christy Clark is trying to use the Fort McMurray to create her own narrative. Uh, I think that's more often than not. Uh, society, uh, people will take anything that happens and try to make their own narrative out of it. Uh, and it's the narrative that decides how we understand it and accept it. Uh, and so I think when you look at, you know, when you look at people taking the fact that it takes a lot of time sometimes to do the census and their narrative there is, well, the census is useless. Uh, that's them trying to reframe the narrative of, well, data isn't the end all and be all. Uh, when you see someone who, Chrissy Clark, who seems, sees fire and says, we must make as much money as possible to handle this, that's her taking her narrative that she wants and putting it on this sort of thing. Uh, and so I think that there's one part of this that I can do, uh, or this, you know, uh, it's that try to understand the narrative the person who's speaking is trying to create. Uh, and then, and before, and, and then use that understanding to then address the facts that are actually happening. Uh, and you can go through this in so many ways. You can do this on both sides of any of any issue. Uh, like, look at what the Economist says about about some about, about a news story that's being touted by environmentalists to understand how the other what what the actual facts are, and then let you create your own narrative. Uh, don't let the media, uh, I say this as currently part of the media, uh, determine how you understand the narrative. Everyone can read every sort of article, uh, article differently and everyone can hear every story differently. Uh, but it all comes down to, in the end, how you understand that and how you add that into your understanding of the world. Uh, and with that, uh, it's 11.59. Thank you so much, Sabina. Uh, we are out of it for this today. This has been the Green Majority on CAT 89.9. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, have a great green week, and we'll see you all real soon. Thank you.